Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I am a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Bradyware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So the question and decision point that we're talking about today is, uh, should I put in a veteran hiring program? And uh, you know, this, this topic is, is one that, that comes up you know, every once in a while, but I think it's particularly timely because we are in uh, an economy – uh, at least by some measures of unprecedented growth. Um, it's inarguable that we're at historic lows in terms of, of unemployment. And I'm not going to debate on this podcast what that means or does not mean. Um, I'm sure there's an economics podcast out there you can listen to if you really want to get in the weeds of that. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that, you know, um, it's, it's pretty easy to find a job and it's pretty hard for employers to find people, qualified people to fill those slots at just about any level. And we are seeing some indications that wages at all levels of the labor force, including at the so-called, you know, unskilled or bottom end of the, of the, uh, the wage scale are, are, are creeping up. So that's telling you there's some, some tightness in the marketplace as we record this on uh, January 10th, 2020. And, and one of the things that then, you know, comes to my mind and gets me thinking is, you know, are we, as an economy, hiring everybody that we could? Are we leaving you know, stones unturned? And there, there are two groups in particular that, that interest me in this area. I mean, everybody talks about you know, people who have been out of the workforce a long time and now they're being pulled back in. Talk about uh, moms or, or even potentially stay-at-home dads that are, are coming back into the labor force. Um, but two groups that are getting, I think, now more attention are um, people with criminal records. That's a topic I definitely want to approach. And I'm, I've got a, a guest, and I'm, I'm, I'm eventually going to track him down and get him to come on. But uh, we're not going to do that today. And then veterans. Not that I want to put them in the same group. But they are two groups that I think are, are historically neglected for you know whatever reason. And you know you, I hear a lot of stories where you know veterans – perform their service to our country for some period of time, whether it's a, you know, a brief enlistment or whether it's a long career up until retirement. And then they find that the, the civilian work environment is not particularly welcoming for veterans that are making that transition. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting to kind of explore why that is and, and also interesting then to to talk about, you know, what is the case for hiring a veteran? You know, I, and I, full disclosure, um, uh, I think some of the best business leaderships, leadership books I've ever read uh, have been written from a military perspective. One of them is called Semper Fi, and I read this about, I'm going to say about 15 years ago, and it talks about 
the application of U.S. Marine Corps team building methods, particularly when they train recruits from day one till they get through the crucible. Um, and I think that's an outstanding book. Not that we're necessarily going to have accountants that are climbing rope ladders and so forth and staying out in the, the woods for 72 hours without food or water, but, but there are a lot of things there that I think are useful. Um, and then another one caught by um, a guy named Michael Abramson, retired captain of the U.S. Navy, called It's, it's Your Ship. And it's a, a story about how he turned around uh, the USS uh, uh, Benfold, that, which was the worst performing ship in the U.S. Pacific Fleet, into the second highest performing ship with only a two-year tour of duty. And uh, I, I heard him speak on that. Fascinating. Read the book. Learned a ton. So, you know, to me... Uh, the, the, you know, the military has a lot to offer in terms of skills that can translate into business. I find it perplexing that employers find it, um, that employers sometimes find themselves hesitant to, to hire veterans. So, um, I, I want to talk about that. And as you know, from our, our show, uh, I don't talk about these things myself cause I don't know anything about it. So we're going to bring in people who do know something about it. And joining us today is a longtime friend, Jason Jones. Uh, Jason leads a C3 service line at Cressa, the world's most trusted occupier-centric commercial real estate firm. C3 stands for Communications, Connectivity, and Cloud, and helps information technology leaders navigate the decisions that lie at the intersection of real estate, finance, and information technology. Um, and you know, as an aside, that's, that's an interesting place to be because uh, not that long ago, we thought that information technology was going to obviate our need for real estate and real estate was going to go away. And it's turned out to be the exact opposite, just like we thought paperless technology get rid of paper. Um, information technology leaders benefit from Jason's experience selecting best-in-class infrastructure service providers who can match each firm's specific needs. Uh, Cressa is an international commercial real estate firm headquartered in Washington, uh, DC. Cressa represents tenants and provides real estate services, including corporate services, strategic planning, transaction management, project management, facilities management, workforce and location planning, portfolio lease administration, capital market supply chain management, sustainability, sublease, and distribution. Formed in 1993, Cressa now has more than 60 offices and 900 employees. In addition to Jason's information technology consultation and real estate experience, Jason brings lessons learned during his military career. His naval service included flying A6 intruder attack jets off of aircraft carriers. While planning and flying tactical missions, he developed a talent for communicating details with concise, mission-oriented focus. Jason has successfully turned his disciplined approach as a naval aviator into a methodical approach for helping companies optimize their corporate real estate and information technology services. After departing the Navy, Jason earned an MBA from Arizona State University and completed a 15-month solo trip around the world about which he wrote and published a book, which I believe is called Nomad, Letters from a Westward Lap of the World. Um, his military, travel, and academic background give him the depth and character to guide his clients to the most effective solutions. Since then, Jason has been active as an advocate to help companies understand the benefits of hiring military veterans and coaching veterans and how to prepare themselves for civilian employment. Uh, Jason's affiliations include the Atlanta Commercial Board of Realtors Million Dollar Club, uh, Buckhead Church member Starting Point Leader, and Duke's C-level graduates of Duke University and is a founder. Um, he is a flight school Top Gun recipient, and that's not exactly what you may think it means, so I'll ask Jason to explain that. Um, it's still good. It's just not the movie. 
uh, published the book that we just talked about. He's a co-star power broker from uh, 2005, 07, and 08, volunteer of the year, and forever two-time recipient of the Forever Duke Award. Jason, thank you for coming on our program, and thank you for your service to our country. Michael, it is a pleasure to be here, and I just want to say I'm so glad that I'm at the right podcast. I got a little nervous when you talked about the criminal records, and I thought, well, maybe that's the one I should have supposed to do. But, but uh, I showed up at the right one. You I'm did show up at the right fit. one. Yes, so yes. Much. Now maybe when we do that other one, we'll. we'll now Jason <laughs> is about as as Jason's about as squeaky clean as it uh, as as it comes, and um, it's it's because of people like Jason that shrieking cowards like me can post anything they want on Facebook. So thank you for that. Um, so before we get into this, as I was. Telling you, in uh, you know, before we actually hit the record button, you know, when I invite people on the show, some people are people I've known a long time. Some people I'm meeting for the first time on the show. You and I have known each other for I think a decade now, yeah, at least. And I did not know that you were a Top Gun recipient. What yeah. does that mean? Sure. Well, um, when I was going through flight school, um, it's a very challenging time. Uh, as I mentioned, um, this was back in the early '90s, and uh, the key to flight school is you only get to select the jet that you want to fly is if you graduate number one in the class. And so there's a lot of incentive and uh, we're naturally competitive people anyways. Yep. And uh, the award that they give to that person is called the Top Gun Award. So that was what I had. Interesting. So, so you chose the A6 Intruder. I did. Why? You know, I... Um, I was so I was a bombardier navigator. I was a naval flight officer, which means that I ran systems on the aircraft. I helped navigate the aircraft to help do all the mission planning and the strike planning and the bomb weaponeering, et cetera. And um, out of all the jets that were available for that type of position in the fleet, the one that I found most attractive is the one that was really at the centerpiece of the carrier battle group. I and mean, when huh. you think about it, the aircraft carriers are made to put bombs on target. Ultimately, yep. it's to project power. The jet that does that and the person who is putting crosshairs on the target and planning those missions is the bombardier navigator in the A6 Intruder. So that's the one place I wanted to be. Okay. It was a great ride. And so you published a book. I was aware of your trip around the world. I did not realize you published a book. So that's going to go on my, my Kindle reading list. Uh, <laughs> well, well, real quick, as I like to tell people, when you read it, remember... It's not Hemingway, it's Jones. So set your expectations. <laughs> uh, well, the good news, I have not been able to get through a Hemingway book in my entire <laughs> well, life. So I, I actually think that's a, that's a positive. But tell us a little bit about, about the book and, and what did you what drove you to write that book? Yeah, sure. Well, I, you know, I've always had a love of adventure, and I think that's part of what attracted me to naval aviation. Um, and so when I um, got out of the Navy after an eight-year tour of service, I um, decided to travel around the world uh, by myself on a backpacker's budget, $40 a day. And um, as I traveled, I kept a journal as I was taught as a young child on family vacations to always keep a log hmm. or a journal. So I did that, and then I, I started uh, – drafting emails to friends and family, letting them know what I was doing, where I was. And as I kept doing that, going from country to country to country, because this was a 15-month trip, I went to approximately 25 countries. And it, we're not talking about Europe, where everything's real close to each other. We're talking about Africa and South America, and it's pretty long distance. So I covered some ground. But um, 
I just, uh, I got the idea. I'm going to share this with other people. I'm going to encourage, uh, especially Americans to contemplate, to consider international travel. I think that's a good thing for those people and also just for relations between people in different countries. Yep. And uh, that's why I made the effort to put it together into a book. I, I could not agree with you more. You know, as you know, I've, I've, I lived abroad early in my career in, in Russia and one of the, one of the more striking things that from that era was that I worked in a building in Minsk that was a bomb shelter, right? <laughs> and then you realize those bombs are supposed to be coming from my home country, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And that, that's the point where for me I realized, you know, they have a different economic system, but yeah. they're afraid of this. You know, they were every bit as afraid of us as we were of them. Yes. Right? And yeah. every, all concerned and everything else. And, you know, unless you go that and you see that and you touch it, you just never experience that, and uh, you know I'll, I'll I'll also take that opportunity to brag on uh, uh, one of my cousins. She also is a, na- a naval aviator. Oh, nice! Uh, was flying, flying whoever it is, whatever the term is, was the person who operates the radar. Okay. Um, I believe it's called a Hawkeye aircraft yeah, surveillance. Kind of, Hawkeye. There you go. Sure. And um, uh, but she was recently admitted into the Monterey Foreign Language School, oh. where she's now learning Arabic. Yeah. So her goal is to get stationed over there. And, yeah. you know, what a great opportunity, right? I, I wish I, again, there was no danger of my joining the military, but there's one part that I was, of which I was envious, that language school, because it's the finest language instruction in the world. And she's going to take that opportunity to learn about the Arabic world, right? right? Which is so very different. And uh, um, Jennifer, you're awesome. So if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> um, you heard it here over the internet. Um, all right, so... You know, you've been successful. You joined the Million Dollar Club, which I assume has something to do with doing something that's worth a million dollars. Somewhat, right? Yeah. So um, how, how in your mind has your military service helped you get to that point? You know, the, um, I think what the military, and specifically I'll speak to naval aviation because yep. that's what I come from, tactical aviation, launching off the aircraft carriers, um, it ingrained in me deeply sort of three character traits or qualities. Um, one is I became very detail-oriented. I became process-driven and mission-focused. Those three things, detail-oriented, process-driven, mission-focused. And um, as I break each of those down, how they, you know, in the Navy, when you're flying jets and you're dropping bombs, you really do need to pay attention to the details. <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess so and, and, that and, makes sense to me. And a little tiny detail. I'll give you one example. So you, you might get a couple of C stories here. On this that's podcast, I, that's what I'm already. hoping. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I had an instructor in flight school who um, was doing some uh, practice bombing runs in a, in a training exercise. And um, you have some settings on the armament control unit that will determine the distance that the bombs will hit the ground um, or the time interval between release of bombs. And those two are related. And then you have another number that's the number of bombs you're going to release. And the A6 could carry, you know, 24, 25, 500-pound bombs. Typically, we only carried, you know, 12 or so and then maybe a missile or two. But in this case, um, they were going through the practice area. They were running out of their time on target, on station, 
And um, they said, well, let's do one more run through and let's run up the number to clear all of our bombs off of our jet. Hmm. The problem with that was their settings for the timing in between the release of bombs was too short of a time for safety. It was only good for dropping one at a time. So when they dialed up the number of bombs and there was a little note in the weaponeering that said, do not drop more than one bomb at a time under these settings. So they, they were under pressure. They needed to get these bombs off. They needed to get out of the target area because you got some other jets that are coming in. They dialed it up, had a bomb-to-bomb collision under the jet. It exploded, and they had to eject. Oof. So that's a sort of a real life story. And it's not that in the, in the business world, we have, you know, situations where, you know, the cost of a missed detail is your life, but you certainly learn it with that level of um, intensity when you're in the military. And I think that can roll over into being a really good employee who pays attention to the details. Well, and you know, business being more forgiving, right? Very few people die. Yes. From, it might be embarrassing. You might even lose a job. That's right. right. But nobody's going to die from it. By definition, that makes it more forgiving, right? So if That's you right. have if you have a mental kind of fault tolerance of that military, you know, you make mistakes, people die kind of thing. Precisely. Then it it, it must seem like almost like child's play. Yeah. Right. In a more forgiving environment. It's just, you're right. It's more forgiving. Um, but the second part of that, so I, I mentioned being process driven. And my C story there that I, I think is kind of somewhat humorous um, and how it applies to the private sector is uh, I had a squadron mate who was taking off of the aircraft carrier. And um, naval aviation. And the military in general, but certainly naval aviation, is really big on checklists. It, all of aviation is, for that matter. Right. My dad was a pilot. He even up up until the day couldn't fly anymore. Thirty years, always had the same checklist. Yes, precisely. It it's a process. It helps with error avoidance, if nothing, and increasing efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was taxiing around the deck of the aircraft carrier. And as you taxi, you know, you have your rudders are your, is your steering wheel. Mm -hmm. So it changes the note where the nose gear points. You also tap your brakes. Um, So he pulls up into um, the catapult uh, and, you know, gets hooked up to the carrier. Um, Then he goes into what's called tension, which is where you go to full power, um, but they haven't shot you off the front end yet. And now you do a quick checklist. You check that your flight surfaces are moving properly. Um, with your your stick, mm-hmm. um, you check that the weight that you have communicated to the catapult officer is correct because they're going to set the pressure of the steam to launch you based on what your weight is. They don't want to do it too fast, don't want it too slow. It's got to be just right. So you're yeah. cross-checking that. And the other thing that you check is that your feet are off the brakes and you say it out loud. Okay. Feet off the brakes. So he goes through his checklist, salutes the catapult officer, Catapult officer fires the button to oh, send no. him down the front, and we hear this loud boom, boom. That was his two main mounts, his tires blowing because they didn't roll because he still had his feet on the brakes. So, guess what his call sign is for the rest of his career? Boom, boom. Oh, no. <laughs> so, it's just a. He's lucky he still had a career. Yeah, well, precisely. But there is some forgiveness for things like this, yeah. and he was fairly young and new, but. Um, the whole point of that is 
there's a process, and that process sometimes includes a checklist. It increases efficiencies and error avoidance, and that's a good thing in the private sector also. And, you know, it's, it's, I thought for sure you're going to give us some story about landing on an aircraft carrier, which to me has got to be one of those the hardest, uh, hardest and most terrorizing things to do. I mean, talk about something that needs precision and discipline. Precisely. And, um, you know, it kind of depends on the weather and time of day. Nighttime, bad weather, not so fun. <laughs> no. Daytime, good weather, actually fun. Okay. It be a good time. Okay. Um, but it's, uh, you know, those are, uh, that that's a process also. And the more consistently you can do the processes and trust the process, take the time to think about what should be the right process, the better success that you're going to have, the fewer errors you're going to have, the greater efficiencies you're going to have. And again, all of that translates into a good employee, someone who has an appreciation for details, for process. And then my third one was mission focus. And that's sort of the X factor um, that I think has helped me in my career. It's not getting um, lost in details, understanding that there's a bigger picture and that we're going to accomplish the mission. That's the thing about somebody coming out of the military is if you give them a goal, if you give them a mission, that's what feeds them. They want to accomplish the mission and they'll do whatever it takes when you have their loyalty and you give them, you tell them you, that you've got their back. So I think that's another key um, attribute of a, what helped me in the private sector. And I think what the benefit is of hiring someone and having a, a veteran hiring program. So, you know, it, it certainly sounds to me like you credit your military service pretty heavily with the success that you have been able to achieve and sustain. Is that why you're so passionate about sort of helping other veterans find their place and helping other companies find a great, you know, great employee? Yes. So it's, it's, it's a couple of things. One is um, I do see the benefit it gave to me and how that parlays itself into the benefits to my company that I work for and the clients that I work for. Um, but there's also just a sense of um, having walked a mile in those shoes of making that transition. And it can be a very difficult time for someone coming out of the military. And when you've been through that crucible, you naturally want to help people get through it as well. And was it hard for you? It was very hard. What about it was so hard? You know, it was one of those things where, A, um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I needed some help there, some guidance as to what's the right fit for me so I can be a good fit for the company I work with or mm -hmm. a good fit for the clients that I work with. Um, so I needed some help there. Um, it happened to be a terrible economy when I was getting out. This was not too long after 9-11. And, um, that was a terrible time, uh, to try to get hired by anybody, um, particularly a 100% commission only based job, um, in commercial real estate where most people are older and have more experience and that's how they get hired. But, um, thankfully I had an angel that flew into my life who hired me and, um, and we've been partners for 19 years, so it can work out to hire someone oh, fresh that, out of the military. There's that loyalty too, right? And, you know, that's another, um, thing that I was going to say, if there are, I described attributes for me as a naval aviator, as a tactical aviator. I also think there are three characteristics of anyone coming out of the military, just generally speaking, that they're going to have that are of benefit to 
um, the private sector to companies hiring them. And you hit on one of them. Um, but I would say it is, they have a tremendous work ethic. They're extremely loyal and they have a sense of personal responsibility. So tremendous work ethic, extremely loyal and a strong sense of personal responsibility. Those three characteristics go a long way. I mean, you can do a lot with that raw talent, those raw materials. Um, you just have to have a program to capture that talent, to bring it into your organization. And then you've got to have some degree of training to help. And that would be the case with anyone coming into an organization new. But I think that's the, that's the investment that's worth making by um, private sector companies. You know, and, and that, that, that last part about about not giving up and you know making sure that you you complete your task as i've read books on military leadership i think i think there's that's something that they do exceptionally exceptionally well they're they're so good at team building yeah because ultimately you have to be able to rely on those people in combat ultimately right so there's just no effing around at that point i have to imagine right and you know, one thing that struck me about the Marine training program, you know, that they, the the one of the ways they train people, I don't know if it's the same way in the Navy, but basically, if if somebody in the platoon screws up, the entire platoon suffers, right? And to my mind, I think that's about as effective a motivator as anybody. It's one thing if you suffer all the time when you screw up. Yeah. But then you see that other people are going to pay a price when you screw up, which is exactly what they're trying to do, right? You screw up, yeah. they die. That's right. I yeah. think that is immensely effective. And then, but then it, it produces somebody whose focus is not even on the dollars, right? right? Once you're on that team, you're just like, I don't want to be the weak link. That's right. Period. Well, you reckon, A, there's that's that sort of uh, comradeship and being a part of something larger than yourself are great qualities for any organization. And you also have that, again, that sense of personal responsibility, that accountability to each other. And I'll give you a good example of um, the kind of accountability that's expected uh, in the military. And I think, gosh, this is the kind of person that I would want to have in my organization. Um, there was someone I knew, he was a Marine Corps officer, and uh, he was stationed for a period of time at the Pentagon. So he's living in um, Arlington, I believe it was, and he's got to drive in the next morning. It's his day to do what's called stand the duty. So every command has a duty officer, someone who answers the phone. If there's some type of emergency, they would be the one that's in charge. Um, and it's a typically a shift uh, during the day. You're the squadron duty officer for that day or whatever the case may be. Um, there was a terrible snowstorm and ice everywhere on the roads. He couldn't make it in to stand the duty. The next morning, it happened overnight. So he calls up to his boss and he says, um, hey, look, as you know, there's this terrible snowstorm, ice storm. I, I can't get in to stand the duty. Well, the response from his boss was, why didn't you drive in last night? You saw that the weather report said there might be, your job is to be here. And we don't shut down. We don't not go to war. We don't not do our duty just because it snowed or there was ice on the roads. <laughs> yeah. You should have come in, set up a cot, and slept here overnight. 
that's the level of accountability that I'm talking about. Now, I'm not, am I saying that we really need to go that far in the private sector? Not really, but boy, wouldn't you want somebody who comes from that type of mentality working in your organization? Well, and, and the underlying texts of that are, are time management yeah. and contingency planning. Correct. Right? Yes. And, and, and contingency, contingency planning and making sure that you control the outcome. Right. Right. What happened in that case is that, that, that individual allowed nature to control the outcome. Right. Which is not, again, like you said, you know, the, the, the military doesn't just take days off. Right. right? That, oh, it's that's a great today. way to get bombed. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, so why do you think veterans have had trouble finding places in civilian? Actually, I'm going to come back to that because I want to, I want to go back to something that I think is so important to your transition. It's, it's, it's better than any of the questions I wrote down, okay. which is, you know, you talked about that, that difficulty transitioning from military into civilian life. Yes. What was it that made, what was it that made the transition Possibly. You said an angel came down, gave you a shot. Yes. 19 years later, you're still there. Right. I want to drill down more into the micro there, right? They, they hired you, mm-hmm. but, but you knew how to, how to navigate and how to drop bombs on people. That's right. As far as I'm aware, that's not part of the Cressa job description. You've never mentioned either of that coming up and when you're selling a lease to a data center. Right. Right. That's correct. Yeah. So, so how did, how, what was that? process like to get you from from that to where you are did they have to train you a ton was it learning by doing was it formal training was it mentoring something else i can't even think dumb luck what was it grit grit i mean it's um this is the other thing it's that i mentioned the um mission focused and just doing whatever it takes to get the job done um one of the things that, I, A, I love to learn, so that's convenient, um, but as soon as you I— You don't go to Duke if you're a rotten student. <laughs> <laughs> I always, my application got put in the wrong pile. I'm telling <laughs> you, I don't know how I got in there. Um, but uh, I just—I feel like, um, you know, someone took a chance, so to speak, on me because they saw raw talent, and then I had the grit— to persevere and teach myself to a large degree, but thankfully um, I had the grit to, and the humility to go to people and learn from them and ask for help. And that's really what I did. It took me 90 job interviews to get that job. 90? 90. Wow. I counted it out. Now, these job interviews were not all interviews for a specific job. It was all informational interviews. Right. but. I counted it up, and it was 90 people in the commercial real estate industry in Atlanta. Number 90 hired me, hired me on the spot. Um, but I, I kept learning along the way, and then once I got that position, I kept those interviews going with now people inside the organization so that I could learn. So that's how – and it was all on-the-job training, and that's part of what was tough about the transition. But what I, what I sense coming out of the military is – it gives you all of these um, raw material qualities that put you in a position for success and to really contribute significantly to whatever organization does themselves a favor, in my opinion, and hires you. So, that, you know, that's interesting. So a learning point that I'm getting out of this is that 
if you know if you're an employer and you're looking at a veteran, and most of the time you're going to look at somebody that does not have a directly translatable skill, right? Some of them are. Um, you know, I have another cousin who is in uh, uh, information security and satellite communications. He's a major in the army. He'll transition to civilian business. Just yeah. in fact, he may he may just stay in the same place, change his uniform for yeah. a suit, basically, or khakis. Um, uh, but I think what I'm learning is that as a, as a hirer, I need to evaluate a little differently, right? Because, um, again, most people are not going to walk in, oh, I, ha- I have five years of experience in accounting, right? Or I have you know, four years of experience in the law or, what, you know, whatever, or real estate. Um, but the X factor is that most, a lot of civilian candidates, if they don't have that, it's a wild card as to whether or not they'll be able to get there from there to here. Correct. Right. With a military person with a military background or veteran, that sounds like that's a lot less of a wild card. Correct. Because again, now here's new mission, right? And it's, you're just, it doesn't, it doesn't even enter your mind that this isn't going to work out. You just, you just figure it out. We're going to burn the ships and we're going to make it happen. We're going to burn the ships. We're going to make, we're going to make it happen. So, um, you, you know, also get one thing I'll add is you yeah. also tend to get, particularly if you're hiring into a a junior position, which it really sort of needs to be for a lot of folks that are you know four to eight years out of the out of either college or high school, and they're now transitioning into the private sector for the first time, they're not going to go straight into an advanced position. Yep, it's going to be entry level and they understand that they're going to rise up quickly and they're going to want to. And I think you should give them that opportunity. But the thing that you get is you get maturity. This is someone who's not straight out of college, who's not straight out of high school. They've got some life experience under their belt and that has to translate into greater productivity, better culture, all these things that you want that really, you talk about culture, that's an X factor. And when you have someone who is detail-oriented, process-driven, mission-focused, extremely loyal, tremendous work ethic, understands personal accountability. That's the kind of person I want in my culture. Yeah, and, and you know, think about how old were you when you were flying right sea of an A6? Uh, would have been from the ages of, you know, graduate college when you're 21 to 28. So at 29. that age, you're in charge of, say, a $20 million aircraft? Fifteen million, twenty million dollar asset, easily, right? Yes. How many twenty-two year olds are in charge of a twenty twenty million dollar balance sheet? Well, <laughs> it, it's not only that you're in charge of where your bombs go. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and and that can be a lot more expensive. And as, as we've learned, not all at once. <laughs> Wherever they go, <laughs> don't do it all at once, right? Yeah, or just pay attention to the details and do them in the right uh, the right amount, right for the right settings. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So. Um, you brought up culture, which is great because that segues exactly the question I want to go to next, which is um, the the I think a, an interesting thing about the military. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's a fairly uniform culture, right? By design, uh, I, I'm sure there are different leaders that have their different styles, but at, at the end of the day, you're in the U.S. military, you're not, right? Um, and if I'm wrong, please correct me because again, I don't know anything. I'm just, just, just a bit of movies talking basically and having beers with my with my cousins. Keep going. Um, uh, you're not going to see that in the business world, right? You're going to see a wide gamut of cultures, some of which are some of which are highly ordered and regimented, some of which are highly decentralized, some of which may seem flat out insane, right? I'm thinking of Silicon Valley startups, something like that, right? 
are there certain cultures that you think veterans are going to gravitate more naturally towards or are, are veterans more of a Swiss army knife where they can adapt and succeed in whatever culture in which they happen to find themselves? So I think that is an excellent question, and I'm so glad you asked it because it gives me the opportunity to dispel a um, a preconceived notion or just the wrong notion yeah. about the military um, and its culture. Good. So uh, it, what I'm going to say is counterintuitive. The culture where someone from the military will probably not do well would be a highly regimented, militaristic culture. Huh. So here's why. What folks don't realize is the culture of, a, of any type of military service, particularly those that are combat services, those that are going to require someone to go into combat, require that person by definition, to operate in a dynamic environment. Mm. They have to be a decision maker. They need the freedom to make decision. So what you do as a good leader for combat services is you explain the big picture, you explain, you tell them what the mission is, and then you leave it up to them to figure out how to do it. Because you never know what happens in the haze of combat where the circumstances are going to change, they're going to have to call an audible, they're going to have to adapt to the circumstances. But as long as they know the big picture and the ultimate goal, they'll be able to make those changes in that rapidly changing dynamic environment to accomplish the mission. That, that reminds me of something, of something I think is attributed to Eisenhower, who said that every battle plan is great until the first shot's fired. <laughs> There you go. Or something like that, right? You That's think, right. You think about D-Day. There's, there's so many things that went wrong in the invasion of D-Day. And to a certain extent, one of the reasons the Allies prevailed is because more things went wrong for the Germans. <laughs> but it was not a Whatever flawless – Whatever it takes. Yeah, it was not a flawless – No, of course not. – operation. People landing where they weren't supposed to. Exactly. Those poor guys crossing the British Channel, they were fed like a 3,000-calorie breakfast. <laughs> you, know, you can predict how that worked out. Um, and again, sort of best laid plans. So that, that you're right; it is counterintuitive because the stereotype is uh, is I've got to have almost almost a marine boot camp style style of management to let somebody from the military really flourish. But in point of fact, where the military exceeds is when they have to think for themselves. It's because you're not always going to have somebody telling you what to do. That's what you. Um, that's what the all of the training is about in the military is putting that person in position to be able to think creatively for themselves yet keep the bigger picture mission in mind. I can think of no better employee that I would want to hire, hmm. right? Yeah. That's what you call a, a, to some degree, this is a little slang is a fire and forget type yep. employee. Okay. And I got this from our, um, one of the guys who used to work for our buddy Scott Paquette. And this person, um, when Scott was describing him, it's a mutual friend of ours, um, he said, oh, yeah, that guy's fire and forget. And what he means by that is there are anti-tank missiles. This is just one example where when you shoot that missile at the tank from a shoulder-fired launcher, there's a little wire that uncoils, but it's connected to that missile, and you guide it all the way to the tank. That's a guided all the way to the tank missile. 
But fire and forget would be that anti-tank missile can lock onto the heat signature of that tank or in some other way where it no longer requires guidance once you fire it out of the tube. So it's fire and forget. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's the kind of employees you want. And that's where the culture, back to your original question, where someone from the military is going to thrive is when you give that person as much leeway, as much freedom as possible, build the walls that they have to operate in very high, but make them very, very wide and say, go get it done. And then you're going to let the horses out of the gate and they're just going to do amazing things for you. So all this sounds fantastic. And I, as an aside, we, we actually have a Marine that is starting in our group starting on Monday. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Um, uh, with all this that's going for veterans, why does it seem like they have trouble getting hired? Well, um, those that may have trouble. And so I don't know what the statistics are or what have you, but I think there's a couple of things. One is their preparation for transition. I don't, I can only speak to my experience. I got out of the Navy in 1999. So that was a long time ago. Um, It wasn't a really, it wasn't a great process for preparing me for that transition. Um, So I think there's uh, preparation is one challenge. Um, But the other's challenge is, and that's why I'm so glad to have an opportunity to do this podcast is awareness on the business side in the private sector of how to translate their experience, their character traits, the qualities that they bring to their organization, being able to have the vision of the employer, having the vision of how can I plug this great talent into my organization? What type of veteran hiring program can I put in place that's going to attract that talent, and then how do I train it? And so I think that that piece is a little bit missing. And, and there are some organizations out there that are dedicated to helping bridge that gap between those two sides. You know, what, what it seems to me, the way you're describing it, it's, it's, it's kind of a shift uh, of, of cost, right? If, if I take somebody out of college who also has very little civilian work experience, right? Um, or they, and maybe, they have, maybe they even do have work experience, the the issue may the issue I may have some comfort on the direct skill set translation side, and the place where I'm going to wind up spending most of my time is on building culture, discipline, work ethic, the desirable, ironically, the soft things that make an employee long term successful. Right? If I hire a veteran, I may have to invest more a, a little bit more on the trainings, the skills training side, but those other things in terms of showing up to work on time and following company procedures and getting along with people and stuff. Being able to think creatively yeah. and keeping the mission Fire focused. and forget. Yes. Right? That's done. I, I can check off that box and I can forget about it. Right? And it's in the long run, it's probably cheaper, easier, and more effective to train the execution skill than it is to train the person in terms of how they're going to be as an employee and a team player. Because the military has already done that for you. The execution skill piece, you know, that's a repeatable process. Yep. And the soft side stuff, that's uh, it's more difficult. 
So let me let me ask that. You may you may not know the answer to this question. So you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a pass anyway. But I'm curious. I can always know, pretend. Yeah. Well, there you go. So one one question I'm curious about if if somebody were to apply for a job at my organization, can I call the military and ask for a reference, or is there a military record something that I can access? As a matter of public record, how do I how do I check somebody's background the same way I might check a civilian applicant? Yeah, yeah I my only answer to that that I'm aware of is that you can at a minimum ask the service member, okay. the former service member, for um, what's called their DD two fourteen okay. Department of Defense Form two fourteen, which is your exit paperwork, which basically says were you given an honorable discharge a dishonorable discharge, a bad conduct discharge. Um, and that will at least let you know with that standing. That's, there may be more, uh, Mike, but that's the only one that I'm aware of. Okay. Fair enough. So um, th- this has been great. I- I've, I've learned a ton. Um, I think w- one last question I want to ask before we wrap up here is uh, – is there a difference? You've talked a lot about, cause I think this is your direct experience. You know, you, you retired from the military relatively early in your life, you know, on the, the right side of 30, as they say. Um, but there are others who are going to go into the workforce that have had a full, is it 20 or 25 year retirement? 20, years. 20 years, right? Yeah. yeah. And know, so, that's... and so they're, they're going to, you know, ha- have retired and they're going to, they're going to have some income coming cause they've earned it. Um, is is there any kind of but a lot of them want to kind of have that second career right they're they're only 45ish right and a lot of life left right uh, maybe you're not ready to play golf for the next 50 years or so I, I, i'm over that number and i got a lot of life left there, so. yeah, god willing right so right. um but is is there a difference in your mind do you think in in hiring somebody that's had that full military career and is going for chapter 2 as opposed to somebody who's relatively young and and maybe there's a different kind of life priority. Does that make any? Am I making any sense of that question? Yeah, I think the idea is um, how motivated are they going to be? Really? Yeah. What kind of effort are they going to put in? How much initiative do they have? Really? Um, my thought there is, you know, let's take a look at some private sector folks that never spent a day in the military, and had a career change. So for instance, let's take one example. You're familiar with David Cummings. Sure. Right. So for those listening who don't know, David Cummings is a highly successful entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur type. Um, So he had an exit, a big one with a company called Pardot. He was all, I mean, had to be in his early thirties. I'm not sure, but he was young. When he sold out and made his gajillion figure, number. And he came to you and he said, Mike, you know, I've got an idea. I've got some ideas. I'm, I'm, I want to, I want to go to work. Would you hire that guy? I think I would find a way to hire him. Yes. I think I'd find David, if you want a job, if you're listening, (laughs) let us know. I'll, I'll get you in touch with our HR person. Right. He left that, he left that big exit, which was a really big number. And, um, you know, bought a building and started a, a startup community, yep. the Atlanta Technology Village, and a fund, and, and a fund, all sorts yeah. of all sorts of things. So it's less about um, are you at the end of one career and how motivated are you because you finished up this career and maybe you have a pension. 
It's really about the person. How hungry is that person? I just think the fact that they were in the military and they hit a retirement age is really irrelevant. It might be something, okay, we need to ask this question, but it's that doesn't mean that they're not going to be have initiative and not be motivated, et cetera, et cetera. Plenty of life left in somebody who is now in their mid-40s and ready for the next thing. All right. Well, it's uh, we're running out of time, and it's time to wrap up. But um, there are probably lots more questions that could be asked and our listeners are going to think of. If, uh, if someone wants to reach out to you to maybe ask a question about maybe they're a veteran looking for some help or they're, they're considering hiring a veteran or putting in a veteran employment program, can they, can they contact you if they want some advice and guidance? Yeah, sure. I, th- I think there's two things that uh, I would say. Number one, very easy to find me. Um, easiest way is just my name. And you can Google it with the word Atlanta because that's where I live. You Google Jason Jones Atlanta, my profile on um, my bio from from my company Cressa, yep. where I help folks with voice communications and network connectivity, uh, will come up top of the page. Amazingly, we must have a really good marketing person who's working <laughs> on the search engine optimization. But the other thing that I would say is there are there's one organization that I do want to mention. That, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's there's two sides to the coin of a veteran getting hired. One is the veteran being prepared and being able to translate what their skill set is to the private sector. And the other is the private sector company understanding. And a, one nonprofit that actually is headquartered here in Atlanta, although they do work all over the world, is called Hire Heroes. And um, you can obviously just Google that. Hire heroes. They have job boards where companies can post their position and veterans can go to take a look at what's available. Obviously, these are people who are interested in the benefits of hiring a veteran or having a, a veteran employment program. Um, they do employer training, which is where they will train your HR staff on veteran hiring and retention. Um, they'll do virtual career fairs. They'll have uh, talent sourcing where you get pre-screened emails, direct your inbox. So I think that would be a good organization to look into if you have an interest in, uh, in veterans. All right. Very good. A little, little information nugget at the end. Very Thank you so much. Um, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. Uh, and I'd like to thank Jason Jones so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.